Heavenly Father, thank you for the faithfulness of our church. Thank you that we care deeply for our neighbors here in Edmonton and our neighbors in Ethiopia. And may we continue to live in such a way that we would bring you glory. Heavenly Father, as we continue through this sermon series in Ezra, may my words fall down and your words be lifted up. A book we may not be familiar with, may you use these words to impact each of us in our minds, our hearts, and our daily lives. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. I love a good story. I can be spending time with people and I want to know a little bit about their background. How did the two of you get married? Tell me the story. How did you end up with that occupation? I'd love to know what got you there. That was a fascinating way in which you made that decision. How did you come to that? A good context I greatly enjoy. I have twin sisters and uh, my sisters and I made a lot of noise running around the house, but there was two, two times a day where mom would make sure we were really quiet. Some of you might know this gentleman, some of you might not, but twice a day, Paul Harvey came on the radio. And Paul Harvey is famous for his line, and now you know the rest of the story. And if you've never heard of Paul Harvey or don't know what any of those stories are, allow me to give you a glimpse. The ideas are his, the words are mine. This is one of Paul Harvey's stories. Remember these four words. Al was utterly useless. Al was utterly useless. In his early 20s, he was writing a letter to his sister and said, it would be better for the whole family if I would just die. I am a burden to this place. His parents, recognizing that he was now a young adult and a little bit impoverished themselves, said to him, Al, we can no longer support you. You have to figure a way to go about it on your own. And not knowing what to do, he eventually thought, I'll write one of my schoolmates. And so somebody who he copied notes off when he was a young boy, he wrote to him and said, is there any way you can help me get a job? To his surprise, a few days later, he wrote back and said, yeah, my dad has some government connections. Show up at the patent office on Wednesday morning. And so on Wednesday morning, Al was sitting there with the director of the patent agency, Fred Howler. Fred looked at this 22-year-old, a little bit disheveled, a little bit extraordinary in his appearance, and he thought, oh boy, this ain't going to go well. And he said, Al, tell me, what do you know about patents? And Al looked at him and said, I know nothing, absolutely nothing about patents. And Fred said to himself, well, normally I would just end the interview there, but that directness is surprising. Let's explore this a little bit. And he said, Al, tell me a little bit about yourself. And Al said, well, I got kicked out of high school when I was 15. And I never got a high school diploma, so it was difficult to get into technical school. I wasn't even allowed in. And so more recently, I thought, if I want to do something with my life, I need to go back to high school. But his old high school wouldn't have him back, so he went to a new high school. He barely passed. He eventually got into a technical school, and it was a disaster. He would start looking for work, and he said his future employers would call his uh, technical school and say, what was Al like? And they said he barely showed up for class, he barely passed his exams, and he treated us as professors like garbage. Well, now Fred Haller was really intrigued. Who's that blunt and that honest? And so he said, let me flip the question on you, Al. Tell me some of the positive things about yourself. That interview went on for two hours, and Fred Haller recognized something a little bit unique about Al. He thought, Al isn't dumb. Al's quite a bright young man. What Al needs is some opportunity, some space, and some time to grow into who I think he could actually be. And it's a good thing he did, because Fred Howler of that patent agency gave this man some space and time, and he eventually taught all of us about space and time, because Al is Albert Einstein. 
And now you know the rest of the story. Backstory matters. Context helps. Historical backgrounds can be fascinating. And after a few weeks in Ezra, we're going to do a second thing that I've never done before. This next part might seem a little bit silly to you, but I want you to grab your Bibles. And if you're online, you can certainly uh, grab a Bible at home or pause the video and, and download this particular app. But I want you to look at the table of contents. Someone came up to me this past week and, and she said to me, Dave, I've been a Christian for 30 years and I never knew the Bible wasn't in chronological order. So looking at the table of contents, you see Genesis to 2 Kings. That's completely in chronological order. Uh, Genesis, uh, we have the story of Israel. It starts Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Is Moses leading the uh, Israelites out of Egypt and in the desert? We have Joshua and Judges. This is coming into the promised land. Uh, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings is the establishment of the nation of Israel in this new promised land. But first and second Chronicles isn't a continuation of Kings. It's kind of a, a retelling of Kings. For those of you who enjoy documentaries, think about what's going to be taking place this upcoming week. And you're going to have all these Remembrance Day stories. It's kind of like that, where it's not a whole new idea. It's just a retelling of the same story. You have uh, Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon. Most of those are written by King David and King, Samuel, uh, King, uh, King Solomon. And then you have all of these prophets. There's three different types of prophets. There's prophets who write pre-exile, before the Israelites are taken into captivity. Prophets who write during the exile. And then prophets who write post-exile. You'll see the last three names there, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And you can flip open to Zechariah. That's where we're going to start today. But back to the book of Ezra first. The Jews have been back in Jerusalem for about 50 years. It's the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. He tells the Jews to go back to Jerusalem. It's the story of renewal. It's the story of joy. 50,000 Jews traveling from Babylon to Jerusalem, a 1,000-mile trek on foot, probably took about four months. There's feasting. There's celebrating. There's excitement. There's a joy. They're coming back home. Persia is a little bit like Canada, where there's a whole bunch of different provinces around you can see Judah in the lower part there. But the surrounding provinces aren't thrilled that they're back. They remember how strong Judah used to be. And so they make life miserable. They threaten the people so much that they stop working on the temple. But they don't just stop for a few months or even a year. As David told us last week, they stop for 16 years. This is Ezra chapter 4, 24, the last verse of the chapter. Thus... The work on the house of the God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. Remember that name, Darius. We'll come back to that. So we're going to move through the book of Ezra at a pretty good pace. There's 10 chapters in the book. We're covering the whole book in seven weeks. Today is the middle of the, message, the, middle of the sermon series. But today we're really only looking at one verse. This is Ezra 5 verse 1. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. It almost seems like this throwaway line, doesn't it? Then you hit verse 2. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets were there helping them. It almost feels like it was this bump in the road, but it's so much bigger than that. They were building the temple, they faced opposition, and they didn't just stop for a couple months. They didn't just stop for a year. It's been 16 years. 
any kids who were there that were 18 years of age wouldn't even know why they're in Jerusalem anymore. They're just doing life. Which takes us back to the table of contents. The last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, another prophet who's writing to the post-exile Jews. But then you have Haggai and Zechariah, and these two prophets could not be more dissimilar. There's an artist and the accountant. Haggai's the accountant. He's dotting every I. He's crossing every T. It's really easy and direct and simple to understand. Zechariah is the artist. He speaks in dreams and visions, and they're absolutely wild to behold. They're a little bit like your dreams and maybe like my dreams. This past Saturday, I had a dream in which I was coming up on the platform, empty auditorium, walking through these back doors, and I went to see Nathan and Colton in this back room. And I was checking on them, and I said, hey guys, what do we need to get the broadcast room up and running? So far, so good, totally normal. Nathan looks at me and he says, we're going to need about 5,000 metal shards. Okay, sure. How do we get these metal shards? And with a straight face, he says, Dave, you're going to have to go kill some robot dinosaurs. (laughs) To which I respond, the only natural way you can. Where are the weapons? And Nathan, who's the soft-spoken guy in our church family, comes up with all these weapons for me to go and get this. Zachariah's got some pretty crazy dreams too. There's dreams of four crowns. There's dreams of a golden lampstand and an olive tree. There's a dream of a flying scroll. And there's this really bizarre dream of a woman in a basket. Thankfully, Zechariah doesn't start so strange. He starts in a way that we can pretty much read and follow along. This is Zechariah chapter 1, picking up in verse 2. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus decrees the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts proposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. For the next six chapters, we read of these incredible dreams and visions by Zechariah. And if you're sitting here going, Dave, there's no way I could just pick up the Bible and know these things. There's a great YouTube channel. If you write in the Bible project and then type in your book of the Bible, it gives great summaries, usually five to eight minutes in length. Here's how it lays out. Dreams one to eight, there's four horsemen on patrol. The underlying question here is important. Israel, now that 70 years has passed, is it now time for God's messianic kingdom to come back? Dreams two and seven are a reflection on Israel's past sins and exile. Okay, Israel, you've heard my warnings. You've seen the northern kingdom go into captivity. You've seen the southern kingdom go into captivity. You were both in captivity for 50 years. Do you believe me that I will do what I say I will do? Dreams 3 and 6 speak about the new Jerusalem. There's a better day coming, people of Israel. Are you looking forward to it? And dreams 4 and 5 are about the prophet, pardon me, the priest, and the governor, Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua is the priest, Zerubbabel the governor, and the message is clear. Renewal is coming if people are faithful to God. 
And so the Israelites hear this prophet Zechariah sharing these things and they get so excited and they say, Zechariah, does that mean the kingdom of God is upon us? In chapters seven and eight, Zechariah flips the script. And he says to them, do you really want to see renewal? Then be the type of people who receive this good news and participate in what God is doing. Stop putting the focus on yourself and recognize that God has a bigger plan here. Stop building your own homes and build God's homes. Stop working on your own little fiefdom and recognize that God has a greater kingdom at store. You want to see God's kingdom come? Then be a part of it. Moving over to Haggai where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning. You might remember that we talked about Cyrus. He's the first king of Persia, and hopefully we've got that locked in. He's the one who started the Persian Empire. Him, alongside Darius, the other person we've mentioned, are two of the greatest kings in the history of the world. It was during the reign of Cyrus that he told not only the Jews, but all people to go back to their homeland and start worshiping your gods. But the surrounding people had uh, threatened them, likely physically intimidated them, and used their political clout to make the Jews rebuilding the temple darn near impossible. So the Israelites think to themselves, enough of this. We don't need all this hassle. We'll get back to God's kingdom later. We'll build that temple at a later date. Let's just focus on our own homes. After Cyrus, you have his son Cambyses, who's the second king of Persia. Cyrus died in a military campaign, and his son takes over. And Cambyses was eventually murdered by Gamada. And this is where it gets really interesting. 2,500 years ago, There is no Google. So Gamada, who kills Cambyses, shows up in the uh, capital of Persia and says, my friends, I am Cyrus's long lost son. I'm Cambyses' brother, the guy he just murdered. I will be your new king. And so the people of Persia go, I guess Gamada is the third king. But what Gamada didn't take into consideration is that Cambyses has a pretty impressive war general. A man by the name of Darius, who he was really good friends with. And Darius is livid. And so Darius takes a vow that he will come back to the capital of Persia. And he will take over Gamada and he will become the fourth king of Persia. And you might sit there and be like, okay, Dave, that's kind of interesting, I guess. But what does that have to do with the text at hand? Everything. Darius is one of the world's greatest kings in the history. And Darius recognizes that for the Persian Empire to be strong, he has to start with his capital. And how well do you think it goes over when a war general walks in and performs a coup and takes over the reigning king? Not well. And so while Darius is totally focused on what's happening in the capital of Persia, God taps a couple prophets on the shoulder and says, now, Darius is distracted. He doesn't care what's happening a thousand miles away in Jerusalem. Start rebuilding. And so we get the prophet Haggai. This is verses one to four. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet and said, 
Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? This point, the Israelites have been in Jerusalem for quite some time. They arrived with great pomp and circumstances. There was celebration, there was joy, and as we already mentioned, it's now been nothing for 16 years. Well, some things have happened. The temple hasn't been built, but the Jews had all this time to build their own homes. You'll notice verse four, you dwell in paneled homes. I looked it up this past week. It said about 15 times in the Old Testament, every single time it has nothing to do with houses and everything to do with the temple. So God's sitting a little sarcastic here. Oh, my people say the time has not yet come. That's cute. Your houses are built and beautiful. My temple lies in ruins. You have paneled homes. My house doesn't even have walls. You're using cedar beams, which is unheard of for personal houses. I don't even have a roof. But you know, the people say my time has not yet come. It's not exactly holding back his punches. This is verses five and six, but listen to the beauty of verse six. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag filled with holes. At the beginning of this chapter, we learn that this takes place in the second year of King Darius, which is important. But there's another part that's important there as well. It says, on the first day of the sixth month. The first day of the month is always the day of the new moon festival. But the timing is also of great importance. The commentators proudly say it happened on August 29th. And the reason this is so important is because the Israelites have just brought in their harvest. And on the first day of the sixth month, there's going to be a harvest festival. If you've ever been to a harvest party or you have friends who are farmers or family who are farmers, you know that first day is one of joyful thanksgiving. And yet here come 50,000 Jews and they're completely disheartened. The granaries, empty. The wine vats, empty. And they show up and there is nothing except disappointment and fatigue. The reality of the situation is staring them in the face. The reason they haven't experienced God's blessing, the reason they haven't experienced renewal is because they have put all their faith, all their focus in building their own house while God's house lies in ruins. 7 to 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring in wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you will withhold the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on that which brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. With your Bibles in front of you, take a look at verses five and seven. 
And you'll notice that they're almost identical language. Depending on which translation you have in front of you, it'll probably say, consider your ways or give careful thought. In verses five and seven, three more times in chapter two. Consider your ways, O Israel. Give careful thought to what is taking place. In a line, you keep building your own house, and my house is in ruins. There's echoes here from the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is working with the people of Israel at this time. Many people believe Israel is about three million strong. They're about to enter into the promised land. And in 28, verse 1, Moses looks at them and says, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully obey all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed. The crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. What's interesting about Deuteronomy chapter 28 is it's broken basically into fifths. The first fifth, all about blessings, all about the good news if you follow God. The next four fifths, all about the curses if you do not. The prophet Malachi, remember, he's also writing to a post-exile Jew, says, return to me and I will return to you. This is the same line Zechariah used. But you ask, well, how are we supposed to return? Will a man rob God, says Malachi? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and in offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not even have enough room for it. It's not just an Old Testament idea either. Jesus speaking to, in the Sermon on the Mount says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given unto you. And we love to hear about renewal. And there's this idea and there's this expectation that God is going to do great things. We love to hear about what's happening with our finances. And we love to hear that we asked to raise $10,000 and we raised $13,000. We love to hear the good news that the youth are meeting in between services and they have 25 or 30 people coming early to, kid, uh, to youth church. We love to hear the stories that are coming out of the baptism tank, but we have to recognize it doesn't just happen. People have to get involved. People need to be a part of it. People need to do what God is calling them to do. One of our strategies as a church is I4. We want to be people of influence who invite, include, and invest. We want to be people of influence in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. We want to invite people to see the greatness and glory, the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. We invite them to Alpha. We invite them to church. We invite them out for meals. We invite them into our homes. But we can't just go, oh man, she's really good at that. All of us take part. We include, but it's not just the first impressions team or the pastoral staff that includes. All of us include. All of us are saying, why don't you come join my small group? Hey, I'm thinking of starting a triad. Oh man, being part of the tech team is so much fun. You should be a part of it. 
and we need to invest. But we can't just go, oh, Joe, rich guy will cover it. All of us need to be a part of that investing strategy. And if you're new to Ellerslie or you're new to church, you might be rolling your eyes and thinking to yourself, here we go again, pastor just wants my money. No, I don't. This has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with your heart. Only moments before Jesus says these words, seek first the kingdom of God. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here's the kicker. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Has nothing to do with money. Has everything to do with your heart. The question in Haggai, the question in Zechariah, the question here in Ezra 5, 1 is the same. Whose house are you building? Are you building your house? Are you building God's house? Are you building your own little fiefdom? Or are we committed to God's kingdom? Now, if you haven't grown up in church or spent time uh, around different Christians, you maybe not have heard this idea of 10%. Church tradition kind of talks about giving 10% of your income, and people hear that and go, whoa, that's a lot. So let me flip the paradigm. What if it's not giving 10%? What if God has given you 100%, and he's letting you keep 90 and saying, just give me 10% back? Everything we have comes from God. Your paycheck comes from God. The ability to get that job, your wisdom, your education, your work ethic, all of that comes from God. The people who went ahead of you to prepare the way for you, your professors, your parents, your friends who allowed you those opportunities, all of that comes from God. Now, maybe you heard that number 10% and you're a little bit in shock. Dave, there is no way I can touch 10%. I'm a single parent. I'm a retiree. I'm a college student. I'm unemployed. I, Dave, I don't have it. Remember, it's not about money. It's about your heart. So if God is talking to you right now and you're not currently giving to the church, where do you think you could start? What's a number that you can come up with alongside God if you're married alongside your spouse and say, this is where I think I would like to begin? And maybe you're at a place where you think, Dave, I, I don't have any money. Start with $5. $5 a week, you can set up direct deposit. It's $20 a month where you say, God, I don't have much. But of the little I have, I'm going to give a small portion to you. Now, you might be sitting there and you might be in that spot where you go, $5, Dave, what, what's the difference? I'll tell you what the difference is. And I'll tell you what $5 can do. $5 will allow me to take somebody out for coffee at Tim Hortons. And that $5, those two $2 coffees, has the potential to change somebody's life. Why? Because I've seen it happen. Will you give to the church to see God's kingdom grow? Others of you hear that and you go, 20 bucks, man, 20 bucks could fall out of my wallet and I wouldn't even notice. And that might well be true. 
Maybe when you were a young adult, you thought to yourself, you know what, this is tough. I'm living in a one-bedroom uh, condo suite. I've just started a new job, and I'm going to give 10% because that's what the church talks about, and that's what my mom and dad talk about. And that was really hard. But 20 years go by, 30 years go by, you're happily married, you're doing well in your career, so is your spouse, and you're like, man, 10%, I don't even miss it. And maybe that's the problem. And maybe it's time to talk with your spouse or to look at what you give and say, God, I, I think it's time for me to give more. Because this idea of the tithe, yeah, it's in the Old Testament. It is never mentioned in the New Testament. The New Testament talks about giving generously. It actually, the word is hilarious. Give hilariously. And maybe it's time to up your giving and to see life transformation happen to see more people in Ethiopia receive food, to see different things happen around our building, to see life transformation happen. I can tell you right now, we have five people who are talking through our youth pastors and different staff who wanna get baptized. Life change is happening here. Last week, we had somebody serving on the tech team for the first time, and uh, one of our tech guys said, hey, like, you've been around for the last few years. Why are you here right now? And he said, the sermon series on Courageous Community changed everything. Do we want to see renewal happen? I'd be amiss to not thank those of you who are faithful givers. Because I'll be honest, right now, we're not in a deficit as a church, which is almost unheard of. Right now, we're in a really good financial spot. Over the summer, we asked to raise $75,000 for some new lighting and a screen that's on back order. We're hoping it'll be ready for Christmas. We raised almost $90,000. We were hoping to raise $10,000 to feed the people in Ethiopia. You saw on the screen a few minutes ago, we raised just shy of $14,000. Life change is happening because of your faithful giving. For some of you, you might be at the spot where you're thinking, you know what, I'm, I'm in a really good place. I feel like my giving is sacrificial. I feel like what I give to the church, whatever the percentage, whatever the number, this is really good. But maybe this is a reminder that during the Christmas season, I'm going to give just a little bit special. And I'm going to put a little bit extra in during these holidays. Why? Our church has been on a shoestring budget for the last three years. And we have special projects like renewing the foyer and seeing some changes happen and impacting the community around us. And we'd love for you to be a part of it. I've entitled today's message, Whose House, which is basically a two-word summary of Haggai 1.9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Will you join with us to see God do great things at Ellerslie in Southwest Edmonton and around the world? You know, there's so many great things about the God who we worship. But one of the things that I love so much is that we don't worship some wooden statue. We don't worship some just idea of some fairy in the sky. We worship a God who would never ask us to do something that he hasn't already done himself. And about 2,000 years ago, Jesus, God the Son, said to his dad, God the Father, what do I need to do next? And God the Father looked at his son and he said, I need you to leave all this wealth. 
I need you to leave the majesty and the glory and the beauty and the splendor and the perfection of heaven. And I need you to go on a rescue mission. Because we're not just here for the Israelites. No, we're here to bless all the nations of the world. And you're going to be born in a barn. You're going to be born to a couple that's going to run away from Jerusalem and go to Egypt so that you're not murdered. And that you're going to live a perfect and holy life and draw hundreds of people and then thousands of people and then millions of people and then hundreds of millions of people to yourself. The Apostle Paul, in the writing in the New Testament after Jesus' death and resurrection said, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. And now that we have the great pleasure of joining with Jesus, we get to use the money he has so graciously given us to see it expand and bless the, and be used for the kingdom of God all around us. Why? So that renewal will happen in our own lives. Renewal will happen in this church and we'll see renewal spread around the world because we worship a great and awesome God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Ezra. Thank you, God, for renewal. Thank you that you are holy and perfect and awesome and give us an example to follow. And God, for those of us who cling to money, may we be reminded that the antidote for love of money is not more money. The antidote is giving it away. And may we be a church that is generous and may we see renewal happen in this place. May we see life change in our own lives and see great stories and great remembrances of transformation. But may we also see it impact our community and around the world. I pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.